Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, where is this? Hey everyone, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I am Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thanks for tuning in. I have a great episode for you today. My guest is Clancy Martin, author of a new book called How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind. But I think the lesson for me is that human beings are not fundamentally evil. They're not even both good and evil, as we put it in some traditions, but that human beings are fundamentally good. And I happen to, to deeply believe that this is true. So I think given that the more fearless I can be as a writer, the more candid and honest I can be when it comes to my own personal experience, recognizing that many people will not have the failings, vices, and having made the mistakes that I have made, and to be sort of a, you know, such a comical figure, really, in the history of suicide, this guy is just like tried over and over and over again, and somehow, very luckily, just can't get it right. Okay, that was Clancy Martin. His new book is called How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind, it was published just yesterday by Pantheon. It's a critical acclaim. How Not to Kill Yourself is harrowing. It is powerful. It is unusually candid. It is a book that is about both the human impulse to self-destruct and it's about how and why to counteract this impulse. It is at once a personal history, a philosophical argument, and a spiritual meditation about a subject matter that I think some people might consider totally incomprehensible or unthinkable, but which so many people know all too well. Clancy Martin, as you just heard, is a person who himself has struggled throughout his life 
with the suicidal impulse and suicidal behavior. He has also struggled with substance abuse and has somehow managed to survive 10 suicide attempts of his own, which he writes about in this book in an unflinching manner and in a plain-spoken way. He also writes about his difficult upbringing in Canada, about his struggles with alcohol, the times that he spent recovering in mental hospitals and finding solace and community at AA meetings. He writes about being married three times and divorced twice and being the father to five kids. And now here he is in his 50s publishing a book that certainly feels to me like his life's work to date. It's hard to imagine anyone writing something more deeply personal than this book. It is an incredibly engrossing and intelligent work of nonfiction, beautifully written and structured and infused with insight and very hard-won wisdom and even some moments of wonderful dark humor. So I know that the word courage gets thrown around a lot when it comes to contemporary literature and it can be overdone, but in this case it really does apply. How Not to Kill Yourself is a courageous book. It's also a brilliant book by a writer who, perhaps against the odds, has found a way to endure. I absolutely loved it. And as somebody who has lost friends to suicide and to parasuicidal behaviors, I was very moved and edified by it. My conversation with Clancy Martin is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of Community Board, the new novel by Tara Conklin. We've all seen those ridiculous posts on neighborhood message boards and apps, people giving stuff away, people complaining about each other, people complaining about the city, people complaining about each other's pets, people proposing to others, people saying awful stuff. In Tara Conklin's new novel, Community Board, this neighborhood message board is Darcy Clipper's greatest comfort. Darcy is in self-imposed solitude after her husband leaves her for his skydiving instructor, and she is relying on her neighbor's posts for connection and company. Community Board is the latest novel from Tara Conklin, a New York Times bestselling author. Her last book, The Last Romantics, was the inaugural read with Jenna Pick. And now she is making her triumphant return with Community Board, a wise, big-hearted, funny novel about unplanned isolation and newly forged community, both online and IRL. That's Community Board, available now from Mariner Books. So the Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? The entire archive of this show, the entire library, everything, more than 800 episodes, all of it is available free of charge. There are no paywalls by design. I don't like paywalls. I want this stuff to be accessible. I want the listening experience for fans of this show to be seamless and user-friendly. But what I am counting on is I am counting on regular listeners, people who really love the show, people who get something from it, people who learn something from it, and slash or people who really love literary culture and want to help see it continue. If that describes you, then I am counting on you to support this show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. This is a listener supported show and I've tried to make 
supporting the show a no-brainer. One dollar a month, just a dollar in the hat every month. It's a sliding scale, so you get to choose one dollar, three, five, ten, twenty, whatever you can afford. And as you move up the scale, you can get merch. So please support the show if you love the show. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to get merchandise, other people, t-shirts or sweatshirts and so on, you can do that over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just scroll down and look for the t-shirt. You can't miss it. If you would like to receive my free once a week email newsletter, you can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. The newsletter is pretty straightforward. I let you know about the latest episodes of the podcast and I share in enumerated fashion, a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting or amusing or both. So sign up for the newsletter if that sounds good. If you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, I would really, really appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast. So Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever it is that you listen, give the show a rating. If it's possible to write a quick review, write a quick review. It really does help the cause. You can follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at OtherPPL. I post video clips of these episodes on social, so check that out. You can also watch these conversations in their entirety on the Other People YouTube channel. Did you know that this show has its own YouTube channel? Just go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, and when you find the channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. If you have feedback for me, you can email me. The address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. And if you would like to read my latest novel, it's out there now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's a work of autofiction. It is intimate and perhaps a bit unusual. I don't know. I voiced the audiobook. Did I say that? So I'll read it to you. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So my guest, once again, is Clancy Martin. His new book is called How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind. It is available now from Pantheon. Clancy Martin is also the author of the novel How to Sell, which published several years ago on FSG. He has also written numerous books on philosophy. He has translated the works of Nietzsche and Soren Kierkegaard and other philosophers. He is a Guggenheim Fellow, and he has written essays and done journalism work in a variety of publications, including The New Yorker, New York Magazine, The Atlantic, Harper's, Esquire, and The Paris Review. Clancy Martin is a professor of philosophy at the University of Missouri in Kansas City and at Ashoka University in New Delhi. I had a really epic and very meaningful conversation with Clancy Martin, which I'm so pleased to share with you right now. And once again, his new book is called How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind. I think the book was principally written for other people like me who suffer from chronic suicidal ideation. And it's interesting, the World Health Organization tells us that 10% of the world population actually suffers from chronic suicide, chronic suicidal ideation. But especially for people who have made an attempt at um, committing suicide and survived. Those are the, that's the first and foremost audience I had in mind for the book. 
unfortunately, the best predictor for death by suicide is having made a suicide attempt. So those are the people I really had in mind. Next, I have those people in mind who who feel this way or think this way, but haven't made an attempt yet. And um, the best predictor for an attempt is when someone threatens an attempt, when someone says, oh, I'm, I'm feeling like killing myself. You always have to take that very seriously uh, because generally speaking, that's when you can expect an attempt to happen when someone's been warned. And it's funny that we haven't recognized that in the past, but it's taken a long time for us to recognize that simple fact. And then the third audience I had in mind for the book was people who have lost someone they love to suicide and felt like they didn't understand how this could possibly happen. A lot of us around the world felt like we lost a friend when Anthony Bourdain committed suicide, and we felt like, how could this possibly happen? How could someone who was so full of life take his own life? And then it makes it it makes us feel disoriented and unmoored. And if you've had someone truly close to you take their own lives, as as a lot of us have, you really will feel disoriented, unmoored, uh, confused, probably full of guilt, anger, regret. And I want people to understand that suicide isn't for, for the survivors of suicide, it's not something that they did wrong. You know, uh, suicide is so often the culmination of, of a battle of years that the suicidal person has been involved in, and they, they finally ran out of energy for the fight. And the person I was really writing for when I was writing the book was just people I have met when I've been in psychiatric institutions following a suicide attempt. And, you know, there are books there to read. And, uh, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if some some poor, lonely person had just attempted suicide and they were in the psychiatric hospital and they went into the rec room or the day room and there was a copy of my book sitting there and they could pick it up and be like, oh, wow, you know, this guy, this guy thinks and feels just like I think and feel and and feel a lot less lonely and maybe even feel a little optimistic that that um, things could things could get better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think like I was reading, uh, the piece in New York magazine and there was a line that made me laugh a little bit where the author was like, this is a tough book to read on the subway in hardcover with, with the book open. Uh, have you considered that? <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of my friends in publishing have said that to me, you know, the old Q train test, like you're sitting on the Q train, you're afraid to, and, um, you know, I thought, I thought about that when we were considering the title and what made me decide that um, I wanted this title in particular is I've had so many students come to me and since I've started writing about suicide in the past, you know, five or 10 years, I've had so many students come to me in my office and, and tell me that they were worried about having suicidal thoughts, worried about doing something rash. And I, I have always had some kind of book to give them, but I've never had a book that sort of directly addressed the problem. And I thought, you know, I could feel really good and I will feel really good the next time a student comes into my office. I'll, I'll ask them all the questions I, I normally do and I'll get them talking about what they're feeling. And But before they leave my office, I'll say, and hey, I've got a present for you and here's this, you know, and if you can make some time to flip through it, please do. And the title tells you what you need to know. So <laughs> tell you how not to kill yourself. Right. So that that was that really motivated me. Now I do hope people won't be 
too embarrassed to read it in public, but, um, you know, what, 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 what can you do? Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I, I think it's worth pointing out too, that this book as so many books by authors I've spoken with on this program grew out of a shorter piece, an essay that you had written for, I believe, Epic magazine, correct? Exactly. Yeah. The, um, Epic reached out to me. They wanted me to write a piece of, um, long, reportage. And I said, well, I don't, I'm not really an investigative journalist. And then they said, well, how about memoirs or something? And I said, I guess I could talk about my time in psychiatric hospitals. And as we were writing the piece, one of the editors of the piece had someone very close to him attempt suicide. And he said to me, you know, I notice every time you've wound up in a psychiatric hospital, it's been for the same reason. And uh, I said, yeah, every time it's been because of a suicide attempt. And he said, well, maybe you could say a bit more than that. And that, that might really help people. And so that's when I took it in that direction or we took it in that direction. And, uh, and then after it came out, I mean, just... Honestly, hundreds of people over the intervening months and years emailing me saying versions of, you know, I was Googling how to kill myself and I came across your essay and I read it and I didn't kill myself. And so I'm just writing you to say thank you. And that makes, a, you know, of course, a huge impact on you as a, as a human being, most of all, but also as a writer, because you never expect that. I know I don't think anyone ever expects as a writer that your writing might have that kind of effect. And so that really got me to thinking, I should say everything that I can, that I know how to say on this book, because in that story, I only gave a little snapshot of my experience with suicide. And, um, and there was a lot more to say and a lot more to confront about myself too. Is there a lesson in there for you as a writer and maybe for writers in general? Because this is, if nothing else, an incredibly intimate and candid and courageous book. You are unsparing uh, in your examination of yourself and in your examination of this subject matter. I have to imagine there might have been some degree of trepidation. How is this going to hit people? Is this too much? And yet you put that essay out into the world and it generates the biggest and most positive and most probably most meaningful response of anything you've ever written, correct? Yes, I mean, that's totally correct. And yeah, there was a lot of trepidation, especially in certain sections of the book, telling people openly these things and um, exposing myself and particularly exposing my failures as a, as a parent to the whole world, you know, especially worrying and and upsetting and and also you know my children but i think the lesson for me is that well there's a a wonderful story told in the confucian tradition about the difference about the fundamental goodness of human beings and the story goes, you know, there's a couple and they have a, a, a little child and the child falls into a pond and drowns. And when we think about that couple, those parents, all of us just instinctively reach out to them because all of us as human beings understand their suffering. And the story is supposed to illustrate that human beings are not fundamentally evil. They're not even both good and evil, as 
as we put it in some traditions, but that human beings are fundamentally good. And I happen to, to deeply believe that this is true. And so I think given that the more fearless I can be as a writer, the more, the, 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 the more candid and honest I can be when it comes to my own personal experience, recognizing that many people will not have the failings, vices, and having made the mistakes that I have made. And to be sort of a, you know, such a comical figure, really, in the history of suicide, this guy is just like tried over and over and over again, and somehow, very luckily, just can't get it right. I mean, just a complete mess up on this question. That's why, you know, part of the reason is called how not to kill yourself, because if you wanted to know how to do it, you're asking the wrong guy. I clearly <laughs> only know how not to do it. Right. It's for that reason that I think that, um, you know, we need to uh, just be maybe especially as writers but just also as human beings like the more we can just open up ourselves up to each other with complete trust and confidence i think the the better off we're going to be even though of course there are going to be some some instances when people are going to use that openness to wound you well you might learn from that too you know yeah i don't yeah i think that's right i think you can't you can't determine your level of openness based on those lesser impulses and the kinds of people who might take advantage. I think the vast majority of people in my experience tend to respond positively, even if they don't know quite how to respond, they, they don't respond negatively when somebody comes to them with that kind of openness and honesty. Yeah. I, that's certainly been my experience that, um, the vast majority of people, if you, if you are willing to just kind of be as open and candid and trusting as possible. It um, appeals to something in human nature that welcomes that kind of intimacy because, you know, at the end of the day, whatever our particular backgrounds, belief structures, whatever dogmatisms we, we happen to be enmeshed in, um, we all cherish these goods of trust and intimacy. Well, one of the one of the things that you write in the book that I think frames the entire book is this line, I've lived nearly all my life with two incompatible ideas in my head. I wish I were dead and I'm glad my suicides failed. Yeah. That, that gets to the heart of it, right? Yeah, that's at the very heart of the book. It's funny you point that out because when I initially wrote that, my editor said, well, I mean, Clancy, this makes no sense. You can't have both of those thoughts in your head at the same time. And she's obviously a much more rational person than I am because I I, I thought, you know, well, no, this makes complete sense. <laughs> this is kind of human nature and the way that we are. We're so full of contradictions and so full of, you know, deeply held incompatible beliefs. But for me, it was a state in a way with which I was already very familiar because of the way divorce with children works. You know, I've been divorced twice and married three times, and I have children with all three of my wives. And when you divorce and you have children, there's all of this regret, you know, all of this, if only I'd done this differently, if only, you know, uh, all the mistakes that you made and you look back and you think, oh, I have so many things I could have, could have done differently and done better. But then at the same time, 
now you've remarried and you have these new children who wouldn't exist if it weren't for the fact that you had gone through that divorce and made all of those mistakes, you know, so you can on the one hand, look back and think, my God, I should have done so many different things differently. I was so stupid. And on the other hand, I'm so grateful that I made all of those mistakes because these new kids wouldn't exist unless I had done so. So to me, this kind of deep irrationality is very familiar and it should, probably shouldn't surprise us. I mean, I think that the the closer we in, try to investigate our own belief structures, the more we're going to find all these kinds of contradictions. And it just so happens in my case that most days I am, I'm very, very happy to be alive and very, very grateful. But then also at the same time, there can come up this, this desire to just end it all, which, which I recognize as incompatible with that happiness and that gratitude. And yet that, that recognition that it's incompatible doesn't make it go away. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, what is the, uh, the old line, the ability to hold two contradictory thoughts in one's mind. It's a mark of a, it's a mark of a good mind in a way, like to be able to recognize that these two things can coexist. And I think another aspect of your investigation here that was so wise and also moving and interesting to me as a reader was the ways in which you explore your family history as it pertains to your suicidal impulses and experiences with suicide attempts. Because I think there is something to it. I don't know if it tells the whole story, but you had quite a childhood and you have these, I mean, your father's a larger than life character in this book. He really was quite, uh, quite a personality, but your stepbrother, Paul took his own life when you were six years old. And when I read that, I sort of paused and I was like, wow, well, of course, somebody who goes through that at age six is going to be, you know, suicide as an option is going to be deeply imprinted on you. And yet, I think about being that, you know, my memories from the age of six are very limited. So I could imagine not quite knowing how to measure the impact of something like that because it happened to you when you were so young. Yeah, I think that that is a really important point that um, we don't really know how it is that we actually are processing these early childhood events, you know, and um, the way in which having a suicide happen um, in my immediate family. And, you know, the first funeral that I ever attended naturally was the, the funeral for the suicide of my big brother, Paul, who was a wonderful guy. And we loved him. We loved the, you know, he, he was sometimes at home and then he'd sometimes get on the road and go to Vancouver. This was in Canada. And he, you know, this was the early seventies. So he's kind of like half hippie and he'd, he'd, he'd get from town to town by making these crystal glass jewel sort of necklaces and bracelets. So when he'd get home, he'd make us these bracelets and necklaces and they just, because they're made of these precious beads, you know, they were like magical to us as little kids. And um, sometimes we'd hide his cigarettes and he'd get furious with us that he, we'd say, where did you guys hide my cigarettes? And, and uh, you know, I, we loved him. And he was this kind of, he was this kind of magical figure in a way. And then when he died, I remember 
at the wake after the funeral, which was at our home, it wasn't a wake in a, you know, in a, in a, in a festive sense of a wake. It was just like a dinner my parents were holding in our home after the funeral. And my little brother and I, you know, we were six and he was four and a half or so. We were playing and laughing and my mom came over and she grabbed us both and she's shook us and said, don't you guys realize what's just happened? Your brother Paul is dead. He killed himself. You can't laugh right now. And in a way that made a bigger impact on me, honestly, than the funeral did. But how do we, how do we measure these things? You know, I, I know also my, my stepsister, Lisa, who tried suicide at least once and probably a few times when we were in the hospital after one of her suicide attempts and she was crying with her head in my lap and I was stroking her hair. And I remember this so vividly because it was the first time I had seen her completely vulnerable. She'd been like the superhero in my life, like just the person I wanted to be. She was seven years older than me and she was so cool and she was beautiful and she was everything great, you know, and that, I think, of course, made an enormous impact on my young psyche, but I didn't get to see the way it was going to, to play out. So I, I do think one of the real challenges I have for myself now as a parent of five children is learning in an ongoing way how to help them as much as I possibly can with any kind of fallout that may they may be dealing with from my suicide attempts, learning from my suicide attempts, my addiction to alcohol, you know, anything that any experiences they had as a consequence of my addiction from alcohol. I mean, that's that's my biggest and most important job right now is as they become adults, trying to help them with all that stuff and say, hey, you know. I've been there. I know what you're going through. Let's let's talk it out because talking it out really does help. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well... When it comes to family and your family story, 
I think it's useful for listeners to get like a, a fuller sense of it. Your parents divorced when you were five and your mother married your father's uh, sponsor from AA. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he had seven children. That's the, right. the, the stepdad had seven children. So there were three from your family, the seven step siblings. You had 10 kids in a house and that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and you write that, uh, you write that all of your suicidal thinking might be traced back to your father's abuse of your mother. So that was a difficult relationship and one that left a mark on you as a child. You witnessed some not so great things. Yeah. I remember this one time that, um, this was before the divorce, but I guess when they had separated and my mom had thrown him out of the house and, um, I just, it's a memory, you know, so it's a little snapshot, but there's this snapshot of my, my older brother and my mother, my older brother would have been about 11 at this time, pushing furniture up against the front door and my dad hammering outside, hammering away on the door. I'm sure he was drunk. And my little brother, Patrick, sitting on the stairs with his thumb in his mouth, staring at us and mean, I just feeling confused and not knowing what to do. And Darren, my older brother, yelling at me and saying, help us, help us. We've got to keep dad out of the house. And um, my mom all. And then Darren was like, look, the, the, the police have come and we're running to the window and seeing the cops running out. And then my dad, who was a very, very physically powerful person, like tossing these cops in the air. <laughs> and um, until some more help came for the cops. And then he was just submerged between the bot beneath the bodies of these policemen. And my mom was like, you, you know, you guys get away from the window. So yeah, these things, of course, must be relevant. And moving into the family, you know, I think with such sympathy with my stepbrothers and stepsisters, their mom had died in the home of a very aggressive form of cancer just months before my mother and my stepfather married. Months before she had died and they'd, they'd watched their own mom die in the home. And then all of a sudden they were in a new house with these three new stepbrothers they didn't know and a stepmother who was, you know, very obviously favoring her own children and their dad was away at work. He always had two jobs. He owned an antique store and he also ran a halfway house for recovering alcoholics and drug addicts. So he was basically out of the house very sensibly as far as he, as far as he is concerned from about seven in the morning until about nine at night every day. And there's my mom and these 10 kids in this rented three bedroom uh, house in Calgary, Alberta, where it's, you know, uh, very cold a lot of the year, particularly back then. And, uh, you know, so you spend a lot of time indoors. So, right. yeah, so it was, it was a, it was a crazy, it was really kind of a crazy environment. I remember one of my early short stories, I wrote about it, I shared with my mom and my stepfather and my stepfather got about two pages into it. And he said, I'm sorry, Clancy, it, I'm, I'm glad that you're right. <laughs> I can't even read it um, because it was about <laughs> something that was going on in the house, you know? And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was, it was uh, a truly unhealthy environment that um, I grew up in as a kid. But so many people do, you know, they have these all kinds, we have all so many different ways of childhood going wrong. And um, as parents, all we can do is try our best to, to learn from um, the 
the mistakes our parents made and the and the mistakes that we are making in an ongoing way you know for sure and you know just to go back to this idea of contradiction there's also lots of love and wisdom shared with you i think in particular of your father who it's hard to know where to begin like how do you describe your father because he embodies so much of this he embodies so much of the mistakes but he also passed along i think to you maybe like the core of your deepest self in particular your deepest self professionally this exploration of what it means to be alive in the world the work that you do as a philosophy professor the work that you do as a writer certainly the work that you do in this book it's hard not to see that lineage between him and you yeah no question about it yeah thank you for that wonderful question brad i mean you know i think my dad gave me my first copy of isherwood's translation of the bhagavad-gita when i was six years old and i read it because (laughs) my dad gave it to me you know and i read herman hesse's siddhartha when i was six or seven years old and um uh, some people might remember Richard Bach's books, Jonathan Livingston Seagull and Illusions. Um, you know, these again, when I was six or seven years old, I was reading these books and they, they because they were given to me by my dad, who I adored, you know, and he was an incredible, he was a terrible husband. The man should never have married. Here, talk about a contradiction. You know, here I am, his child. He absolutely should never have married and he should <laughs> never have married my mother. My mother should known him, should have known better than to marry him. But he was, he was incredibly charismatic, handsome guy. I, I have to interrupt you because this is where like there, there is a larger than life quality to your life story, to him. But there's the p- part of the book where I, I was like, I was flabbergasted. Your father who struggled with mental illness was arrested at his senior prom for having threatened his mother with a gun. Is that right? Like yep. your father not only your... threatened her, he actually tried to shoot her. He, he yeah. shot at her. <laughs> so, so he and your he and your mother, he and your mother are dating in high school. They are dancing during their prom, and the police come and essentially pull them apart, grab your father, and haul him off. Yep, that's a true story. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> I know. And yet she marries this guy. He also tried to to burn them up. He burned down a house out on Lake Winnipeg that um, they had trying to trying to murder them on a separate occasion. But, you know, I never really saw growing up, other than the story I just told about the, the police, I never really saw that side of him because he moved down to the United States in Florida. And then we'd visit him once or twice a year. And he became like a a new age guru down there. He opened a series of churches called the Church of Living Love. And he he always opened them in places where there were plenty of of rich widows because he knew how to play to his strengths. He was a very handsome man and um, and he was enormously charismatic. And so he would open them in, you know, the island of Palm Beach. Actually, here's a really funny story that um, I don't think is in the book. This is the first time we visited him in Florida and we were we were in his house on Palm Beach and we we're out on the on the back balcony. And this is on the island of Palm Beach. And there was a house not very far away where we could see onto the other person's back balcony. And one day we're sitting out there with my dad and um, some guy comes out there and starts playing guitar. And my dad said, do you boys, do you know who that is? And we we're like, no. And my dad says, oh, well, that's his name is John Lennon. And he was just a, uh, a regular uh, kid 
from the streets of Liverpool and look at him now. He's, he's living next to your old man. And <laughs> <laughs> did you get to talk to John Lennon or was I it just did, a, I didn't, but, uh, I saw him there playing, uh, playing his guitar on the, on his balcony. And then what I love about the story now is that my dad thought, you know, from my dad's perspective, it was John Lennon who had raised himself up in the world, you know, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Now look at him. He's in proximity yeah, to me. Look at him. He look, yeah, he's, he's done so well. He's managed to live next door to your dad. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, oh. this exposure that you had as a young person, you mentioned the, the books that your dad was passing along to you, but all the, all the stuff that he did in this new age sphere, like not only starting his own churches and kind of fashioning himself as a guru, one of the things in this book that's very funny to me is the fact that every car your dad owned had a vanity license plate that said, I believe, Great Guru. Yeah, the, the, the GR8. Eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> GR8 Guru, yeah. You know, he was, in a very real way, tuned into a lot of the... There are a lot of touchstones in that world that I think would be recognizable to people. Like He went to Esalen. He was hanging around with Timothy Leary and Ram Dass and that whole crew. Like yep. he was, this wasn't some sort of passing thing or, or something that he was really out on his own completely doing. Like he was reacting to and interacting with a lot of the stuff of that day. And, and honestly, a lot of the stuff that continues to, a lot of that stuff continues to be relevant to a lot of people. Sure. Yeah. I have a student who's off to graduate school right now. And he said to me, um, he sent me an email recently and said, oh, I've just started reading Ram Das, and wow, he's fantastic. I'm surprised we don't talk about him in your classes. And I said, yeah, he is. He is fantastic. He was a friend of my father's actually. And, and I, I know my dad really liked Ram Das, but you know, he considered him to be a, you know, a peer. And a lot of these characters that from the New Age movement were people that, I guess, back then in the 70s, you know, my dad owned a house in Coronado, California for some time and, and lived lived mostly on the kind of southern half of the coast of California, where all of those places are, you know, the Paramahansa Yogananda Institute, all of these people, and the various communes that sprung up as well. And I visited all of them with him and, or most of them, I guess. And uh, uh, yeah, they were, you know, it wasn't such a huge group at that time. So they all did, I think, kind of get to know each other. And you're right, it continues to be influential to this day. I think actually maybe even more and more as we are revisiting the therapeutic, psychological, and perhaps spiritual effects of some of the things that they are most interested in then, you know, LSD, magic mushrooms, all this kind of thing. I mean, Western science is opening up again right now in a way, particularly when it comes to the question of mental health, to these avenues that were um, first explored in the early 70s. The whole positive psycho psychological movement, you know, the most popular class in the country is uh, taught by Laurie Santos at Yale, as you know, a class called ha On Happiness, and How to Be Happy. And um, Laurie's positive psychology, all of that stuff is just a natural continuation of the New Age movement. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, I think that the, the uh, migration of Eastern psychology, Eastern philosophy from East to West in the mid 20th century and then the ways in which it has influenced not just psychology 
and philosophy, but just culture, you know, all of yeah. it, the, the impact is so big. It's a, the kind of thing that I like hungry to read a, a book about in the same vein as your book, like one that really gets into the weeds and goes deeply into it because I think it's a big story. Yeah. I th- had thought about trying to write that book more than once. There had, there are a few books. Um, there's a guy, named Jeffrey Kripal, who's a professor of religion at Rice University, who has written very well about Esalen. He's a, he's a fascinating intellect, but uh, I don't know if anybody has done quite the kind of, you know, popular cultural biography that could be done of the movement. And I, I do think it would really be well worth doing because, you know, um, when I was first visiting the new age sections of bookstores with my father, you know, looking for books on astral projection and meditation and this kind of thing. Um, I don't think anyone would have guessed at that time in mainstream psychology or psychiatry or um, behavioral health generally that meditation just 20, 30 years later would become you know, absolutely ordinary thing for people to talk about as part of just their daily, everyday wellness program. You know, it's like I do my jogging, then I do my meditation. I mean, people say this from every walk of life. And at one point, we thought this was like a very counterculture, very marginal sort of thing. Well, the point that you made earlier about the fact that it was a relatively small community back when your father was you know, meeting and hanging around with the Ram Dasses and the Timothy Learys of the world, that's a very good point. You know, when they first, I've read a, a little bit about this and I, I know it's like Joseph Goldstein or Sharon Salzberg or one of these kind of like OG uh, meditators and right. uh, East, you know, West to East, back to the West people was saying that when they would talk about what meditation was, they were mocked often. Yeah, but you sure. just sit, you just sit there. I mean, it was right. truly exotic and considered very strange that recently. The 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Recently. Yeah. But now it's like nobody bats an eye. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, um, when I teach my Buddhist philosophy course, uh, the, you know, we, we spend a day on kind of like technical philosophical concepts. And then we spend a day that's a little bit more practice oriented. And as I explain this to my students, um, you know, I'll say, so on Thursdays, we're going to have a llama come into class or the Lama has come in person or has come virtually because I'm not qualified to teach you guys how to meditate, but we'll be doing a little bit of practice and then we'll have opportunity to talk about our practice. So how many of you have practiced meditation before? Always three quarters of the students raise their hands, you know? So it's, yeah, it's, it is remarkable the way it's changed. But um, even my dad, I think would be so surprised if you were still alive today. And I'm sure he'd have something disapproving to say about it. (laughs) But I think also, you know, he always, uh, for all of uh, his adult life and for formative years of mine, teen years and and young adulthood, he made these pilgrimages to India every year, sometimes twice a year. And I wound up doing the same thing. And some years ago, the year I met my wife, Amy, actually, I was writing a story about my dad for Men's Journal, and um, I wanted to go visit some of the places that he had visited. And I and I did manage to visit a few of them. And at one point, I talked to this this very very revered Lama. His name was Lama Gaudi, 
and other lamas would come from all over Nepal, Bhutan, India, um, former Tibet, to to see Lama Gaudi and um, to ask him questions about things, and so we were trying to find trying to find Lama Gaudi because I wanted to ask him this question about my dad, which was was my dad crazy or was he really on to something? You know, was he in touch with something? And um, we couldn't find him. And then one day we just walked into this convenience store in the town where he usually lived. And my wife, who had seen Lama Gaudi before, said, that's there, you know, buying a Coke or whatever. That's Lama Gaudi. And so we quickly talked to the shopkeeper who happily was Tibetan. And she said, oh, I could translate for you. And I, so I said, well, I want to ask uh, the Lama if, um, about my father. And she said, well, he can't tell you anything about your father. Um, uh, he never met your dad. And I said, well, I still would like to ask. And, and um, so the Lama said, yes, I'd be happy to, in Tibetan, I'd be happy to talk to him about his father. And we sat down and I told him about my dad. And then I asked him, you know, was um, my father, was my father just crazy or was, you know, this somehow bound up with some kind of spiritual process he was in and some understanding that he had. And then he sat down and he, he did his mo, this, this thing that, that, that lamas will do where they um, kind of consult with their malas. And then he said to the uh, translator, he said, no, his father wasn't crazy. And this was uh, uh, helpful to me. Yeah. I mean, I bet. And I didn't get that sense as a reader for what it's worth. I mean, I think that, and I think too, like, listen, we're all, a little bit crazy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it's not that he didn't have his moments. Right. Yeah. But I think like <laughs> I never got the sense that he was fundamentally crazy. And I think that the best sides of your dad were really good and that his best instincts were good, you know, but uh, life is difficult. And, uh, you know, sometimes people, I think, can be overwhelmed, as you well know, yeah. you know. And so I think that was you know, somewhat the case for him. And I think that's exactly right. And you, I mean, you put it so generously and beautifully and that's, you know, you almost exactly echoed the language that both my first wife who did meet my father and my, my um, present wife, Amy, how they both described him that in just the terms you use that he was, you know, really, really a good person who in a certain way got overwhelmed. And for my wife, Amy, she thinks there's nothing mysterious about it. She thinks, well, he just, he learned some things that he should never have spoken about. And when you speak about these particular kinds of things that should not be spoken, you will wind up getting yourself in trouble. But that's a, that's a particular spiritual tradition, the tantric tradition, where you're, there are a lot of things you're just not supposed to talk about. And um, so for her, she, he's like, she's like, you violated some tantric samayas and then you get punished for doing that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe she's right. Yeah, maybe, and <laughs> maybe she's right. Yeah. <laughs> so this book and or in this book, you divide your relationship with suicidality into three phases, uh, three phases of your life, basically. There's the suicidally inclined stage, the crisis stage, and the recovery stage. Can you just give listeners like a brief uh, description of what you mean by this so that they can understand? Like suicidally inclined, we'll start with. What does that mean? 
Yes, suicidally inclined. Now, this is um, what I think a lot of people will identify with. For me, what suicidally inclined meant was that um, suicidal ideation was a, a, a constant fixture of my mental life, and that when I would get into crisis situations, I would see this as a desirable option. It didn't always mean that I was going to take the option, but I would feel like, oh, if only I could kill myself, then that would solve the problem. And I, and I really thought it was a good idea, that killing myself was a good idea. That, was, that stage lasted a long time. The first 30 plus years of my life, really. And the, and the, and the pivot, I should say, because 30, if, if we take it to 30, that was right around the time that your father passed away, which was a yeah. pivotal moment, which I think maybe sent you into the next stage, which is the crisis stage. Exactly. I think it was the death of my dad and the kind of feeling of security at the end of the day, and also security, but also accountability. You know, I, I, I felt safe in the world in one way because my father was there, but I also felt accountable, like directly accountable. You know, my mom, I, I felt like could always forgive me anything, including if I died at my own hand, but my dad, he would, no, he would, he would not have tolerated. He would not have tolerated me going to the psych ward even one time. And if I went there one time, it'd be like, well, son, I'm sorry. This, this is just not something you are ever allowed to do again. And it would have been. But, but yet he, him, he himself wound up in the psych ward. He, well, he died in the psych ward. <laughs> right. Right. But, and Lord knows that Pendle Plant spent so much time in hospitals. But yeah, so I, I really did become, I didn't see it honestly until writing this book it, it it was through the writing of this book that it became clear to me how significant in my life the death of my father was i went through some real denial about it but then yes then i went into cri- into a real crisis mode when my drinking skyrocketed my sort of irresponsible behaviors of all kinds skyrocketed and my suicide attempts skyrocketed and then I went from thinking this was a good thing to just like, okay, I just need to get this done. And I made multiple attempts of all different kinds. And uh, even one time trying to throw myself off a building and thank God somebody pulled me back. It almost got, uh, almost got pulled off with me. But, um, and, uh, and then that really, la- the worst year of that, I think, was in 2011. And then in 2012, I started to kind of pull all of that. At this point, my life was just in ruins in 2011. You know, I wasn't, my, my second wife wasn't letting me see my, my daughters. Um, I was constantly, I'd been sober, or I had been not drinking for two years, the years of 2009, 2010. I hadn't been drink. I hadn't taken touch liquor, but I was, I was a total mess as a consequence because this had in a way had been a medicine for me. But, and then in 2011, I was constantly relapsing, drinking again. And I mean, I was, I didn't know it, but probably my job was rapidly getting close to being on the line because my colleagues could see what a wreck I was. They weren't, they weren't letting on, but I, I have a feeling if things had gone on much longer, there would have been started to be conversations about it. And then I had the great good sense, thinking about my dad again, to get in touch with the, the only person who had really understood the character of my father in my first novel. Uh, this interviewer uh, 
had gotten in touch with me with my first novel came out and she said, you know, my favorite character in the book was the dad character who was directly based on my father. And, and can I interrupt that the first novel was called how to sell exactly how to sell. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, she was interviewing me about how to sell. And she said, I just love the dad character. You did such a good job of describing what, what, a what a, these spiritual people are really like. And, um, I got in touch with her and I was like, Hey, you know, that she'd stayed in my mind for that reason. And then we wound up, you know, Facebooking and then texting and then talking on the phone. And then she came to Kansas city and then we fell in love. And that was my, my present wife, Amy. And she, I needed her honestly to, to help me both see what a mess my life had become and to, to help me to reorient things. And, um, she was, she was just a huge help to me then and has been an enormous help ever since. She's just one of those, one of those people who sort of brings goodness along into any situation. And so that helped you transition to the recovery stage yep. where you currently are and, and the recovery stage from which you, you clearly wrote this book. I don't think you could write this book from the crisis stage. No, I <laughs> couldn't have written it from the crisis stage. Yeah. I went through a little mini crisis about halfway through the book a couple of years ago and, um, it was brutal. It was a couple months of incredibly ferocious depression, but even then I wasn't in crisis in the way that I talk about in the crisis stage where it's like you get into a really bad situation, you just try to kill yourself. You know, it was more like I was wrestling with terrible depression and I could see, oh, I have to be extra careful right now because if I'm not extra careful, um, I, I will make an attempt. And the big, the crucial distinction there, Brad, is one that I, I can't um, uh, stress strongly enough, which is the shift in thinking from believing that suicide is a good idea to recognizing that suicide is a bad idea. And that really is what distinguishes for me in my life and what I think for so many people I talk to who try to help through their suicidal crises, what made the difference between a crisis mode and the recovery mode. I had finally gotten to the point where I started to see that, yes, the idea of suicide still pops up. And quite frequently, a lot less frequently, the last four, five, six months or so, I'm very grateful to report, though I don't want to jinx myself. But the shift in thinking was I went from, from being convinced in my deepest belief structure that suicide was a good idea to recognizing, no, suicide is a bad idea, even if it sometimes may still seem appealing. Yeah. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, one of the things that you write about in the book that resonated with me uh, has to do with the fact that in many schools of thought, philosophical, spiritual, uh, I think Buddhist schools of thought, the desire for non-existence is one of the fundamental forms of suffering. It's intrinsic to the human experience and not some outlier. And I was pleased to read that because it confirms for me 
something that I have long thought and have said on this show before, which is that suicidal ideation and the quote unquote death drive is way more common than people discuss or admit. Right. I mean, this absolutely. is part of who we are as, as human beings. Yeah. It's absolutely part of who we are. It explains so much of our behavior, which otherwise would remain inexplicable, you know, like why we do all these crazy self-destructive things that we do, even when we know that they are crazy self-destructive things that we are doing. We do have this addiction to this particular form of suffering, which is a desire for non-existence, you know, a, a desire not to be. And learning, first of all, to live with that, to be able to, to acknowledge that without acting on it is, a, is I think, a, a big step in the right direction. You know, I have, I have all kinds of crazy thoughts. The craziest ideas go through my head in any given day, you know, but I don't act on all of them, you know, or I don't look at them and say, oh, what a good idea to do that. You know, I should maybe think about doing that tomorrow or start planning to do that. You know, no, I just like look at them and say, well, there, there's a weird, bad idea. I'm sure not going to do that one and let it go. And I think that when it comes to the desire for non-existence, some of those crazy thoughts I'm talking about are also expressions of that desire for non-existence. You know, some of the worst thoughts that we might have might be expressions of that desire. And yet we don't act on them. We don't chase after them. And similarly with the desire with suicidal ideation, whether it's occasional as it is for so many people or chronic, um, but passive as it is for, as I say, as much as 10% of the world population or, you know, more active, we can, we can see that thought. We can even welcome the thought. Say, oh, hey, there you are again. I'm glad to see you. Yeah, okay. I'm not afraid of you. You're not scaring me. I'm, I can greet you like a friend. And in doing that, then you can say, okay, and now go on your way with the rest of these, these crazy thoughts that I don't need to hang on to. Well, that's a good point. I think that I think one of the reasons why it's underreported and under-discussed this suicidal ideation, even passive suicidal ideation, or maybe especially passive suicidal ideation. Especially passive suicidal. As a, as a common experience is because there is shame attached to it. And there is this desire, I think, for people to keep it secret, or if they're experiencing it, to resist it. And what you just said is that the maybe counterintuitive reality is that the, the way the best way probably to deal with it is to embrace it is to look at it and give it your attention and that by doing that its power over you dissipates i think that's exactly 100 percent right yeah yeah but i think people think well no i'm going to bury it or i'm going to you know push it off to the side or try not to think about it or not admit that it happened and it, that strengthens it. And that's always how those kinds of thoughts gain their strength. If we think about it, you know, and about our own experience, you know, when we try to bury those things, they become more fearful, they become more powerful and they, and, and then they, when we're in a weak place, they lunge out at us. And then the worst part about those, that, 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 the burying those things. And, and then the way they lunge out at us when we're in a, when we're in a weak place is they, They've been nurturing their power and they suddenly seem so true. You know, it's like, oh, I've been hiding from this. And why I've been hiding, why have I been hiding from this? Because I know it's it's the truth of the matter, you know. And that illusion of veracity makes it so much more compelling 
you know, it's kind of like when you're angry and you and you're yelling at someone, say, in a fight and you feel like now, finally, I am speaking the truth. Now I'm saying all these things that I've never dared to say before. And I know that they're true. And you even want to stay, go on being angry because you're like, you feel empowered by this. And then, you know, a couple hours later, you're like, oh, my God, why did I say those things? None of those right. things were true. None of those right. things were right. Or they had right. some kind of kernel of truth that was being grossly distorted by the anger. Um and uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a real shame that because of the, uh, the way the Judeo-Christian tradition developed in the West, but it, this has happened in other cultures also, that there is this terrible stigma against suicide and suicidal ideation that keeps us from talking about it because the only guaranteeing medicine that we know of that works for suicidal ideation is for talking about it, for opening up about it and for, you know, being able to, to welcome it, treat it as a friend to, 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 to domesticate it. That, that does work and it does help. And that's um, statistically shown to be the case, but you know, Centuries ago, there were these Christians who wanted to get to heaven in a hurry, and they thought that the best way to do it, to get to heaven in a hurry without sinning, was to kill themselves. And then a very smart fellow by the name of St. Augustine was like, we've got to put a stop to all these Christians killing themselves. This is not a good idea. This is not what God had in mind. And then he wrote these brilliant diatribes against suicide, which had enormous influential, enormous intellectual influence on, on everyone after him. And now... What was the crux? I mean, do you can you is it something you can encapsulate or is it a, of his argument? Yeah, uh, he said that because God gave you this life, you are violating God's will when you assert yourself and take it away. That's the crux of the argument. Yeah, sure. This, this is a, this is a gift God gave you, so it's it's not yours to it's not yours to to abandon. You know, and in a way, I have a sympathy with this argument because I think that it capture, it does capture something that is um, so easy for us to miss, which is the opportunity we have, you know, to look around, to meet a new person that you're talking to. And you, this like amazing thing happens where you actually understand each other, even though you've never spoken before and you have no reason to think that this, that you could manage to like uh, understand each other about the, some of the most fundamental things in, in, in human existence, you know, it's incredible really when you think about it or, or, or just to look around and see it's a the sun outside and the plants deciding it's spring and coming out of the earth again, all these things. I do think that it's easy for us to forget, particularly for suicidal people like me, it's easy to forget how much there is to be grateful for in just ordinary life. And, and that far, I think Augustine has hit on something really important that is, although life is full of suffering and it's incredibly difficult, there's also just so much to be grateful for if we, if we can take a breath and take a look around, you know, and surprising too, like I say, that communication, successful communication between two people who've never met before about some of the most profound subjects in human life. It's kind of a miracle when you realize that can happen, you know, just yeah. like that. That's why I keep doing this show. It happens yeah. a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isn't it something? I mean, yeah, I know. It's crazy. lucky to be a human. 
Well, I want to talk about some famous people who have taken their own lives. You discuss several cultural figures that are recognizable to us all. Anthony Bourdain, as you mentioned earlier, Robin Williams. And then at a literary level, there's Nellie Arcan, Anne Sexton, David Foster Wallace. These are people who, like writers in particular, who made suicide art, if that's such a thing, before taking their own lives. And I think you make a pretty persuasive argument that they sort of invented their own deaths in a way by making art about it and going so deeply into it. It's a, it's powerful to imagine such a dark thing. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, in maybe a not so great way, it can move a person in that direction, in the direction of making such visions a reality. I think we have to be incredibly careful about this. I always say that if it weren't for Ernest Hemingway and Charles Bukowski, I don't think I ever would have become an alcoholic in the way that I did, you know, but those, those guys are so good at romanticizing, basically being an alcoholic, being a drunk that, that it just seems like, wow, you know, they're really, these really cool guys who also um, pointed out that being a drunk is really cool. So why shouldn't I be a drunk too? You know, it's not that hard. It's a little unpleasant, but it's <laughs> not that hard. And the same thing can happen with suicide and does happen with suicide. You know, the, the notorious 27 club is a, a, a romanticization of, you know, this um, live fast, die young, very, very dangerous idea that uh, afflicts a lot of people. When a South Korean pop star kills herself, you know, suicide rates go through the roof in South Korea. Well, suicide is a contagion. You know, yeah, this idea of it being contagious is it, real. It's very real. Yeah. The contagion of suicide, the so-called Werther effect um, after Goethe's Bildungsroman, The Sorrows of Young Werther. It, suicide contagion is a real thing. And the romanticization of suicide is a real thing. So I had to be particularly scrupulous about this when I was writing the book and, and tell people, hey, you know, if you're in a if you're in a perilous spot right now, don't even bother reading this chapter because this chapter, um, these people, uh, whether they want to or not, they wind up making suicide seem more attractive, seeming like a good idea rather than, than seeming like a bad idea. Even Nellie Arcan, who so clearly thought that suicide was a terrible idea, winds up kind of adding this strange luster to suicide. And, um, so we do have to be really mindful of that. There is an opposite, uh, an effect opposite to the Werther effect. It's called the Papageno effect. After um, Papageno in in uh, Mozart's uh, The Magic Flute, and Papageno is this character who wants to kill himself and then doesn't because all of his friends give him good reasons to live. And it turns out that if we talk about suicide in a in an informed and rich way. So the way, you know, that I really tried my hardest to talk about the suicide of Anthony Bourdain in, in the book, showing how suicidal thinking had been part of his life, you know, all of his life, as far as we can tell, at least all of his writing life, and that he'd been wrestling with depression and anxiety, and that he'd had these very self-destructive spells in his life and impulses, um, and that he, he himself, you know, wrote about wanting to commit suicide. Uh, very early on 
and repeatedly and repeatedly told his friends about it. Then when people learn that, they understand the larger context. And then rather than thinking, oh, wouldn't it be cool to be like Anthony Bourdain and take my own life? They think, oh, golly, poor Anthony Bourdain. Um, what a sad ending to his life that could have been avoided. And then that makes them think about any suicidal ideation they have themselves and realize again, this, this thing that I'm stressing that, oh yeah, suicide was a bad ending for him, a bad death, a death that he actually could have avoided once they're informed about it. But when we give a little snapshot of suicide, like in a short, in a David Foster Wallace short story, for example, it doesn't necessarily have that effect. It can very much have the opposite effect. And I really think that David Foster Wallace's suicide, for example, you know, I spoke with some of his very most intimate friends when writing that part of the book and um, friend, some friends who were happy for me to quote them and some friends who uh, asked me not to quote them, but the, the closest people to him. And I think everybody agreed that his, his suicide was not a necessary one even though he perhaps thought of it as necessary from quite early on in his 20s, it was avoidable. It was a, a, the unfortunate consequence of a pattern of thinking that he was trying to get out of. You know, he was starting to do Zen meditation. It was, it was starting to help in some ways, but then he wound up on the wrong medications and the medication that had been working, he got off of because it was giving him so much stomach trouble. And um, then next thing you know, he just... He just, he, he couldn't, he couldn't keep up the fight any longer, but uh, and what about, the way uh, what about medication? I, I apologize for interrupting, but I think it's an interesting question because people who have neurochemical imbalances or are genetically or biologically predisposed to uh, severe depression, anxiety, that stuff is real. Like yeah. that, those are biological realities and sometimes drugs can be lifesavers for people, but other times they can cause trouble. It's a, it's not the, it's not a simple issue. Yeah, no, I completely agree. You know, my um, 28 year old daughter, Zelly called me about three or four months ago, maybe five months ago now. And she said she was crying and she's like, dad, I'm just like, I'm struggling so much. I, I have all these deadlines. You know, she's in grad school right now. She's, um, at, uh, getting her degree in journalism at UT Austin. And um, she was, you know, all these different problems. And I was like, okay, honey, you know, what do you think might help, you know, trying to talk her through it? Is there anything that you think would help? And she said, well, I'm just, I think maybe I should go back on an SSRR, but I'm just afraid to because it was so hard to get off of it last time. And I said, well, what makes you think you shouldn't go back on an SSRI other than that it was hard to get off of it? Because that's already, you know, let's not presume that you need to be off of it. And when you're talking about maybe you should be on it. And she's like, well, there nothing really. I mean, I don't, there wasn't any real downside. And um, she was like, it may have had um, some effects on my relationship with my husband, but there, you know, we're already in a worse situation than that right now. And because I'm, I'm so depressed and I'm so stressed out. And I was like, well, then why aren't you going on it? Try it out, see if it works. And, and she was like, well, I just, I'm a little bit afraid to, because it was hard to get off. And I said, well, you know, um, give it a shot and we'll, we'll, we'll deal with the question of whether you should be getting off of it when, when, if, and when that becomes an issue. So 
she did. And now she, she's like, I was talking to her about it on the phone the other day. And she is like, I've turned into such a proselytizer of SSRIs. Everybody I know I'm, I'm trying, I'm getting, is getting on an SSRI because I've just become so productive and I'm so happy. And I just feel like I was so unhappy for several years there and it was constantly unnecessary. And I was like, exactly. You know, I mean, the, the key, it seems to me, where we run into trouble with this question in particular, but also with some more fundamental questions, is failing to recognize that the only reliable caretaker of our own psychological nutrition is ourselves. You know, we really, it's not easy because it's always easier to turn your, your, responsibility something to something over to, you know, an authority, a professional, like just let the professional tell me how to do it. And then I don't have to, but that's, that's not the best way to go because so often psychiatrists, first of all, they can't see inside your head. And so often also they're just, you know, they're kind of doing their best throwing darts at a board to see what, what will work and what doesn't. And you just, all of us, particularly those of us who struggle with depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation, we have to recognize that we have to take care of ourselves. You know, just like you take care of a child, or if you don't have children, the way you take care of a pet. You know, you 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 watch that 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 being that needs to be cared for, and you see what works well for it and what doesn't work well for it and how much exercise it needs and what kind of food it needs and what kind of environment it needs and what kind of medication it needs, you know, and there's going to be some trial and error involved in that process. But the, the benefits of the process are enormous because um, suddenly you might find that things are just going really, really well. And it's because, you know, I, I get frustrated on this issue because we spend so much time worrying about the condition of our physical bodies which is a good thing. You know, we should care about our, take good care of our physical bodies and it's wonderful and it will contribute to our mental health. But we spend so much comparatively, such little time thinking about our psychological, our spiritual, our, our psychic well-being, you know. And if we spend half as much, half the time we spent worrying about our exercise routines on our on our spiritual or psychological well-being, we'd all be so much better off than we are. But it, that it takes that willingness to go back on an SSRI in Zelly's case to recognize that, yeah, that did work for me. And so I should give it another chance and try it again. And also go into it knowing that if it doesn't work, maybe I should try something different, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, I think the, what's coming to mind for me as I listen to you is again, this word attention, like careful attention to your own psyche your own thought processes, the way that your body and your body feels, the way that you feel emotionally. If you can be tuned in to that stuff, you can make more effective choices yep. I think on it's behalf exact, of yourself. I think you said it much better than I did. It's this simple attention, you know, careful attention. If you just give yourself the luxury and the gift of paying careful attention to yourself, you will reap the benefits of that careful attention. It's not, it's not the easiest thing to do. It sounds easy. Yeah. But to, be, to get good at it, I mean, I think one example that you lay out in the book has to do with exercise, which can be useful in 
making a person's mental health situation improve. And I think maybe I've noticed this in myself as a dedicated exerciser is that, you know, as you age, your body doesn't respond maybe the way that it used to. And the kind of exercise that you need on a particular day relative to how your body is feeling or how you're feeling emotionally can be different. And if you try to push yourself into a form of exercise that you're not ready for on that particular day, you can injure yourself or it won't be effective in helping to alleviate depressive feelings or thoughts. Yeah, I think that's a perfect metaphor. You know, we just need to, in, in the exact same way that you describe, anyone who uh, is taking really good care of her, his body, their body, will know just what you're talking about when it comes to exercise. You know, that some exercise is right some days and some exercise is wrong. And that the way you get injured is when you're not listening to your body, when you're not paying attention to what your body actually needs. And similarly with our psychological well-being. And it it is in some ways, for you know, we, we find it easier for some reason to carefully attend to things that are obviously external. And we find it harder to, to um, pay that same attention to invisible things, you know, to, to internal things. And um, so it does take practice, but um, happily there are, there are also lots of good teachers out there. That's one of the reasons that, you know, someone asked me, I've been asked more than once, why didn't you just write a straight memoir? And my answer is, well, because I feel like my life raises lots of helpful questions, but, you know, maybe doesn't necessarily provide all that many great answers. Happily, there are a lot of people out there over the history of thinking about suicide that are a lot smarter and a lot wiser than I am. And they do have some answers and they do have some guidance, you know. Well, but I thought, I mean, that's like, I love that part of your book. And, and I just think that you obviously come across on the page as somebody who's well-read and curious and deeply interested in this stuff. And you integrate the perspectives of, for example, like the, along the lines of what we were just discussing, um, being tuned in to yourself internally and externally and how that helps you make wise choices in your own best interest. That is related to a Nietzschean line of thinking, as I recall. There was a, uh, a bit earlier where you were talking about tending to your darker thoughts and feelings as if they were a child or as if they were a pet. I recognize this from reading Thich Nhat Hanh. Right, exactly. Advocates very much, and that's a very effective way of thinking about it. We think, oh, I'm having depressive thoughts or I'm having negative thoughts and I should just push those away. I don't want to have those. And again, it's counterintuitive. The way to lessen the power of those thoughts and feelings is to treat them as if they were a wailing baby, yeah, for example. That's exactly and what do you do with what do you do with a wailing baby? You pick it up. Yeah. You might feed it. You yeah. might, you know, you might sing to it. You know, the the this is the way that we need to learn to treat ourselves, in particular, maybe. Our, our lesser selves or ourselves that are afflicted by difficult feelings or difficult circumstances. Yeah, exactly. And this is, you know, when you're caring for that crying baby, which I do a lot these days because I have a one-year-old, your first question isn't, why is the baby crying? Your first, your first question is, 
how do I soothe the baby? You know, you might later get to the issue of, okay, well now I need to change her diaper or she's hungry or she's, you know, you might later want to look for the causes, but the first thing that you need to do is soothe the baby. First, pick up the crying baby and care for the baby. And then you can go and um, see what further needs to be done to help the crying baby. And, and similarly, when you are struck with um, some kind of scary, violent thought, like the thought of taking your own life, for example, in the, in the case of um, our subject, first thing to do, you know, take that thought and just hold it care for it. Don't be afraid of it. Just okay, I'm here for you. You don't, you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have you. I'm just going to take care of you. Then if you want to um, go further and, and um, look at why it is that this thought has come about or something, well, you, you have that, you will have that opportunity. But the, the immediate need is just to, to, to soothe the crying baby. So something that I want to talk to you about, we're obviously not going to be able to cover everything that your book uh, entails, but I do want to get to an aspect of your book that I thought was very wise and something that I have not seen too much uh, written about. And that might just be a gap in my own reading. But I was pleased to see you talk about the relationship between suicidology and addiction, addictive thought and behavior and the similarities that it has to people who struggle with suicidal ideation or suicide attempts. There does seem to be something deeply similar about these two things. Yes. For me, this was crucial for uh, understanding my own suicidality and and um, for helping me to start to recover from it which I which I do believe again knock on wood um, I do believe I'm experiencing right now I'm so grateful to say um, that that suicidal thinking if not perhaps even just a species of addictive thinking at least is parallel to it in structurally to addictive thinking you know I was talking with someone who read my book yesterday and he was a recovering addict an na guy and he said i remember one thing that um, someone wise told me this is this fellow speaking he said addiction is just addiction to narcotics is just suicide by way of drugs and i said yeah that's exactly right it's just you know suicide suicide parasuicidal behavior yeah yeah parasuicidal behavior exactly uh, trying to kill yourself and just doing it more slowly, which interestingly, in the some of the early books written against uh, suicide, uh, a book by a guy named John Sim, uh, hundreds of years ago, he actually thought parasuicidal behavior, trying to do itself, do kill yourself slowly, was worse than morally speaking than kill, trying to kill yourself in, in a in a through one of the quick manners, because he said it was a way of trying to kill yourself without accepting responsibility for the fact that you were trying to kill yourself, which in a way I think I was doing with my drinking. I was trying to kill myself without admitting to myself at some level that this was just one more way of trying to kill myself. Right. But, but yeah, the, the, the funny thing about what you point out in, and that I've learned through seeing at least the parallels between these ways of thinking is how the 
the thought of, for me, taking a drink because um, my addiction was alcohol and the thought of taking my own life, um, how they have become similarly at the same time, both less appealing and less threatening and how that how the structure of the way they've become less threatening and less appealing has been just exactly parallel. Like the thoughts still come up, of course, although come up, I'm grateful to say again, with less frequency, but it's the way they come up and they're they're They don't have this menacing quality. They don't have this, they don't have this pull. They don't have the teeth in them that they used to have. And it feels exactly the same. Whereas 10 years ago, in 11, 12 years ago now, I guess in 2011, the way they, the way the pull they had, the, the, the power they had when they popped up in my brain was also exactly the same. Like, yes, got to do it now in both cases. Oh, thinking of a drink, got to take one now. Oh, thinking of killing myself, I got I to gotta figure out how to do it now. And the feeling of them being just exactly the same is what led me to believe that it must be right, that that suicidal thinking is just another kind of addictive thinking. Well, how, what changed if you if you broke those patterns or if you feel now that they don't have the teeth, you know, these thoughts don't have the teeth that they used to? Yeah, I, I think what changed, the fundamental thing that changed was just that tiny attitudinal difference that you and I are talking about of um, feeling like I had to feeling that there was something evil or bad or that I had to run away from or menacing or terrifying or shameful about those thoughts to being willing to be open to those thoughts and, and to be open to them without acting on them, you know, being able to accept them in the way that I could accept other thoughts that I also recognized that I didn't need to act on, you know, that, that they weren't action thoughts. Like some thoughts, you just kind of treat them like action thoughts. And that, that I, in, in fact, I think it's better if we um, can learn to treat almost none of our thoughts like action thoughts. Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny because, you know, I've, I've been a meditator for my whole adult life and something I've been doing in the past several years has to, has to do with um, this Buddhist monk named Ajahn Chah. And what he advises is he advises to like, no matter what thought comes up, just say it's uncertain. <laughs> and I do that. I do oh, that. What excellent advice. Yeah. Is. I mean, so like yeah. no matter what, it's like a good thought. Uh, it's uncertain. Oh, it's a, it's a negative thought or a depressive thought. It's uncertain. And you just sort of poke a hole in whatever comes up. And I found it helpful. You learn to, if nothing else, I've learned to realize how ephemeral thoughts are. They're just like little bubbles that float around and pop and go away. Yeah, I think that that is exactly 100% what changed for me was that I started to realize that they didn't have to have that certainty, exactly that certainty that you're talking about. And certainty is a better way of putting it, actually, that I hadn't thought about for, for expressing the same idea, that their uncertainty means that they're going to change, you know? And so, consequently, if they're going to change, then they're okay, 
whether it's a, a, a drinking thought or any other addictive thought, if you know, oh, this is going to change, then you immediately recognize what follows from that is, is, is I don't have to do anything. I, I can just let the thought change. And, and it will, and it will go away. Like surprisingly, yeah, surprisingly exactly. quickly, surprisingly quickly, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's the other thing is it's, it's, it's amazing how fast it is. There's a teacher of mine, a Buddhist Lama who says, if you will just, he says, I know it's going to be difficult. I know it's hard to, to, to do this, but I want to encourage you to try this. No matter how scary the thought is, no matter how depressed you are feeling, just just grab hold of that thought and be willing to stay with that thought. And he said, if you can do that, no matter how terrible the depression you're suffering is, if you can do that for a month, every time it comes, grab hold of it. He said, I promise you, by the end of that month, you will be like a fisherman fishing for that thought. You will, you will miss that thought so much because it, you, will not, you won't be able to get it anymore. That's how quickly you, you will realize that's how quickly it changes. Mm. And I think for a person who's stuck in a pattern of addictive thinking, you do these strange things to actually reinforce the thought. You know, it's, I think of the song from uh, Jane's Addiction, that, that famous song where She's one of the refrains is, you know, I'm going to kick tomorrow. I'm going to kick tomorrow. And, you know, that I'm going to kick tomorrow is a way of reifying, of making real the thought that you are addicted, of, of, of promising yourself that the thought is not going to change. You know, like I'm going to make sure this thought doesn't change. And why? Because I'm going to quit tomorrow, you know, right. Uh, making yourself these promises about the future. Whereas if you were like, well, am I going to quit? Am I not going to quit? Which is very much also what I learned in my experience of relapsing. Through my changing, you know, I used to think that relapse, uh, the, the famous AA phrase, relapse is part of recovery, was a way of like getting back on the horse, you know, after you'd getting back on the wagon, after you'd fallen off the wagon, you don't, don't, don't worry about it. You've relapsed. Just hop back on the wagon. Now I think it's something means something quite different, which is just what you said about uncertainty. The key, I think, to relapse as part of recovery is letting go of the idea that you are being compelled to drink in any way or that the thought is making. So when, when it happens, it just happens. Okay. And it happened. And now you let it go. And it, it isn't that it had to happen or that it, it's who you are that you were going to drink. And now it's who you are that I have to not drink again. It's this fundamental shift in the way that you think about your own relation, your relationship with your own thoughts. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, like that's a, that's a good place to pivot to where I think this book ultimately leads you and leads the reader is to this place of letting go. And I think what you're talking about is not just letting go of the dark stuff, but letting go of the light stuff too. We cling to both yeah. and it makes us miserable, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know? And so there's an equanimity. It's not easy to do. You know, it's very easy to cling. It's very easy to get stuck in negative patterns. It's very easy to want the good stuff to stick around and to feel a sense of anxiety about it going away. And you know, something I was struck by, this is reminding me, something I was struck by repeatedly in reading your book was the way that you would describe suicidal ideation in conjunction with the word panic, 
because it is not something that I think I had previously considered. I think when I would think about suicidal ideation as a subject matter, I would often think of it in the context of depressive thinking, sad thinking, misery, grief. But you repeatedly refer to the word panic. It's a, it's a panicky uh, feeling more than it is maybe a sad feeling even. And the response for people who make attempts is a response, I guess, maybe primarily or oftentimes primarily to a, a sense of panic, of anxiety. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And actually, when we look at the psychiatric literature on this, this is we see that this is um, very much the case that um, that it's usually not um, one of these kind of uh, states of anhedonia when people are in a deep depressive state. That's normally not when they actually take their own lives. It's it's one of the reasons that psychiatrists are very often most worried about their patients when they're immediately after they're released from the psychiatric hospital after, say, a long stay for depression, because it is much more when the fear of this depression coming back or the fears that are associated with everyday life or the fears that are uh, that may have been the kinds of things that push them into that part of what pushed them into the depressive state in the first place. When those come back, that you get the panic response and then you get the suicide attempt. Hmm. And so, um, you know, of course, people commit suicide for for hundreds or thousands of different reasons. And we, you know, we're, we're talking about, I'm talking about especially the kind that I know best. Um, but I do think it's an extremely common kind of suicidal thinking and um, suicidal ideation and a reason for making an attempt. And, um, and I, I think it is exactly, as you say, it's this, this feeling of claustrophobia, this feeling of panic, this fight or flight response, and a feeling like, you know, I've got to do something, but there's only one thing I know to do. And the only one thing you know to do turns out to be exactly the wrong thing to do. You know, as, as Ken Baldwin famously said after he leapt off the Golden Gate Bridge, I suddenly realized when I jumped that everything in my life was totally accept, was totally fixable, except for the one thing that, that I had just done, which was jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's quite an epiphany. And he survived. I mean, like, yeah, by, by he some... survived. Thank, thank goodness. Yeah. Well, I want to make sure to let listeners know that a huge component of the back half of this book has to do with recovery, practical matters, practical uh, exercises, things one can do if one is feeling suicidal. There's also, uh, there, there are extended uh, appendices in this book where you get into all kinds of, there's all sorts of resources. Um, that's a big part of it. And I think, you know, listeners who are interested in this book will find a lot of solace in that. And also, I just found it interesting, you know, that just as one example, uh, there was the, I guess what, I don't know if it was a social scientist or a philosopher, Edwin Schneidman, who is an expert on stopping people from committing suicide. Yeah. He reduced his prescriptive thoughts down to reduce the pain remove the blinders, lighten the pressure, do all three just a little bit. And that can yeah. help to stop yourself or someone else from 
doing something drastic and irreversible. And then you also have, I think, what, nine or 10 things that you yourself have kind of come up with that have been useful to you and you share those. Yeah. 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 No, I think Schneidman, uh, you know, he's really the founder of suicidology in this country and one of the most profound thinkers we've had on, on how to help suicidal people. And to, to speak to the question of, you know, suicide and panic, if you look at his recommendations there, these are all things just to, just to take you out of a state of panic, really, you know, just reduce the pressure take down the blinders just a little bit so you can see a little bit broader horizon than the immediate crisis that you're confronting. Let me stop you actually, just because I think people listening might be like, what do you mean reduce the pressure? How do you reduce the pressure? Just a little bit. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I think people are going to find different ways of reducing the pressure just a little bit. A more advanced way is the way we've been talking about, which is trying to welcome the thought that you think is creating that pressure that that's a more advanced way and maybe um not necessarily the best way to start i think one of the best ways to start for reducing the pressure of the kind of of the kind of panicky suicidal thinking is just to get up and take a walk you know get yourself out of whatever even if it's the middle of the night just you know you're really really close to it you think you're getting ready to do it however the the way particular way you're going to do, you know, just walk out of that situation. Um, Change your environment. Change your environment. Yeah, exactly. And the nice thing about taking a walk, which is always the first thing, you know, two ways of reducing pressure that will work for almost everyone. Talking to someone will reduce the pressure a little bit because just, uh, you know, Fears shared or fears diminished, as as the NBA star Kevin Love says. You know, um, if you just talk about it a little bit, suddenly it becomes less threatening. You know, Meghan Markle. If I knew if I didn't talk about it, I was going to do it. I mean, if you just talk about it a little bit with someone, you're going to find okay, I can breathe a little bit more than I could before. Another way, definitely, of reducing the pressure get up and go for a walk. And if I am talking to someone in crisis, this is the thing I do. I want to say, I want you to keep talking to me or texting or emailing, whatever we're doing. Let's just keep doing it for a little bit. And in the meantime, if you can bring your phone with you, rather than if you're on your computer, if you can switch to your phone, um, I want you to just like get up and take a little walk, you know? And sometimes this has been someone who's been in the streets of Mumbai and they're like, oh, you know, it's it's really late at night here. It's not that safe where I am. And I'm like, okay, well, can you just even go down to the lobby of the apartment and just walk around a little bit there and maybe go out for a block, just a block and a half or two and come back? And and it works. It reduces the pressure a little. All you have to do is a little bit, you know. I like this concept of a little bit too that is common to Schneidman and um, a lot of great teachers. There's um, this prayer I say every night before I go to sleep and I and often frequently a lot of times during the day and it, and part of the prayer is make me a little bit less selfish just a little bit less selfish you know i know i'm never going to be um as unselfish as i might like to be but if i could be even just a little bit less selfish that would be 
um, helpful. And you don't ever expect to take your blinders down all the way. Of course, you're always going to have some tunnel vision about what's, especially when you're really going through some problems. But if you can just open them up a little bit and have a little bit larger perspective, then you might see yourself. If I think often one way of lessening the pressure too is to recognize that you're just like one person in this drama. You know, you're not the only person in this drama. There are all these other people in this drama too. And then you can, you know, maybe if you can see yourself a little bit less as the 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 central character in this in this terrible narrative, and as more as like one of the characters in this kind of crazy narrative, then you're sort of like, ah, oh, maybe if you know, maybe if Clancy makes a mistake next, it's not the end of the world because he's not he's not the only character in this. There's all these other characters running around too. Yeah, yeah. Well. This is a wonderful book and it's a very rich resource on this subject matter. And it's a very necessary deep dive exploration uh, that I found hugely interesting and beneficial, bracing at times, of course, but I think you've done uh, your reader a great service. And I think you would agree with me in saying, or you would agree with me when I say that you've probably done yourself a great service by taking yourself through these paces. This is a big undertaking and you have forced yourself to look at this stuff closely and to think about it deeply. And so assuming that is true, <laughs> I would just say to you, congratulations. And I would say that I wish you good health and a happy long life. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brad. That's very, very kind of you. And I, appreciate it very much. And I, of course, wish you the same. And um, uh, I do feel like I got very lucky to stumble onto the opportunity to write this book and um, to look at all these things that I had been afraid to look at closely before, and then to find in looking at them more closely that they didn't have to be they, they didn't have to be as frightening as I thought they were, you know, and then suddenly, very surprisingly to find like, oh, things might really be getting better. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> you, and not, not only that, in conjunction with that, and maybe not, uh, not as an accident either, you're helping a lot of people. People are reaching out to you. You're having these conversations with people who are struggling. You've become uh, a touchstone for people and a resource for people. And that's deep. That's deep work. That's a deep service that you're offering uh, through your work. That's very meaningful. So I'm sure you feel that. Yeah, I I hope I hope that there are some. If I you know like I said at the outset, if the, if I think of some, I remember this one young woman I met in a psychiatric hospital, and she attempted suicide many more times than I had, and she was in so much pain, and I could just everyone around her could see that she was perfect, that there was nothing about her that needed to change, you know, that she was just absolutely perfect and except for her. And she thought she was just the worst person on the planet. <sighs> so hard to be human. And um, if I think about someone like that and finding this book and then realizing, hey, maybe I'm really not so bad as I thought I was, then, then I do feel like, oh, the, this was worth doing. Well, on that note, uh, thank you so much for the time that you've given. We talked a while, but there's so much to discuss. And I wish you the best with this book uh, once again. And uh, I wish you the best in life. 
Thanks, Brad. I'm, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and um, I'm grateful uh, for your work and I'm, I'm grateful to have met you, truly. All right, everybody, there we have it. That was my conversation with Clancy Martin. His new book is called How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind. It is available now from Pantheon. As far as I can tell, Clancy does not have much of an internet presence. I don't think there's a website. He is very lightly on Instagram, but I think that's about it for social media. That said, he does publish prolifically in a variety of places as a journalist and an essayist. So a simple search online will yield a lot of gold. Again, the new book is called How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind. It is not an easy book, but it is totally engrossing and it is a very rewarding read. So if you're feeling up to it, I highly recommend it. Go get your copy wherever books are sold. The Other People podcast is offered freely. If you love this show, support this show over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. Help this program continue into the future. If you would like to get merchandise, another people t-shirt, another people sweatshirt, just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com. If you would like to sign up for my free once-a-week email newsletter, you can do that at otherppl.com or bradlesty.com. And if you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, I would really appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It helps new listeners find the show. Don't forget to follow the program on social media, Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at OtherPPL. You can also watch my conversation with Clancy Martin over on the Other People YouTube channel. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. It's free. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. And if you would like to read my latest book, it's a novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. Again, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So up next on the program, I believe is going to be a new Craftwork episode. I will be joined by Carly Waters, a literary agent, and she will be sharing with me her insights into how to find a good literary agent in case that is of interest to you. So stay tuned. <laughs>